0: Father in heaven, thank you for your words. Thank you that you have uh, told us everything that we need to know and believe. And so please would you uh, give us confidence this morning as we look at your scriptures about uh, your words, that you would uh, help us, uh, reform us, change our mind about some things, uh, sharpen our thinking on others, help us to be totally convinced that you have spoken and that we can hear your voice for your namesake. Amen. An outline on the back of your uh, service sheet, on the notice sheet, if that's helpful for you. Um, certainly, if you're going to want to ask questions, we've a little question time at the end. Uh, if you want to ask questions, perhaps jot them down as you go. That'll be helpful for you, I think. Inevitably, when we come to uh, a talk like this, uh, there is limited time. Uh, and there's much to cover. And I'm going to uh, hit a few major things this morning, but there'll be other things that you might want to, uh, to think about, things that you might wish I'd spoken about. Uh, some of them are in the book, do grab that if you wish to. Uh, and do press me on these in question time. There'll be things that I will touch on in passing that you think, gosh, I could really, would love to uh, hear more on that. And perhaps they're things that really, in their forms of time, we might have a whole talk on by themselves, but uh, we're just beginning to sketch the landscape here. Over the summer I was uh, clearing out my study, which I tried to do from time to time, and I found this. It's a road map of uh, Southeast Spain, uh, which, to be honest, I didn't know we had. Uh, I think it's been in the back of a cupboard for the last uh, decade. Um, it's, it's a curio, isn't it? It's an odd little thing. It's a fairly useless artefact that's just been sort of gently mouldering in the back of my cupboard uh, for a number of years. It's useless, really. Unless you're lost in the hills of southern Spain, in which case it's really handy. And believe me, I speak as someone who has been lost in the hills of southern Spain without a map, and wish I'd had one with me. And I don't speak any Spanish either, so that wasn't particularly great. See, in that situation, a map like this will save your life, or at least help you to find your way home. And so it is with the doctrine of the word. It may seem to us like a curio, the treasured artefact, perhaps, of... Theologians, but hardly relevant to the life of 21st century Christians in London. So it's important for me to stake out the ground at this point, to show you why this is an utterly crucial doctrine. Uh, the, really, the first doctrine, the one upon which all other truths we believe are founded. You'll note uh, the, word, the words of Psalm 19, verse 1. The heavens declare the glory of God and the skies proclaim his handiwork. To which we might then respond, well, why do we need the word of God? The existence of the universe ought to be enough to teach us about God. We can surely work out God from the world around us. To which, uh, if you know uh, Romans, the the Apostle Paul responds in Romans chapter 1. Let me turn it up. I'm flicking all over. If you want to follow along, Romans chapter 1, and we're uh, page... Romans chapter 1, verse 18 and following. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Since what may be known about God is plain to them because God has made it plain to them. Uh, Psalm 19, verse 1. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that the people are without excuse. See, Paul says, yes, we know some things about God from nature. His power and eternity. But human sinfulness means that we don't listen. We suppress the truth. It's as though we've, we've stabbed the truth and buried it under the patio. We don't want to hear about it. We deny it. And it's because we deny the truth about God that he is pouring out his wrath on mankind. God has revealed himself in nature, but our sin is like a a set of. I don't know if you've ever borrowed somebody else's glasses, somebody who's got a really, really strong prescription, and you put them on and you you get a headache almost instantly and you can't really see anything out of them. Well, that's what sin is like for us. It's like a, a set of glasses that we can't actually see through, that blur everything, that mean that we don't see things as they truly are. We're left in spiritual darkness. Human beings, by ourselves, we we don't know, and we cannot know God, unless he acts to remove the glasses for us. In our natural state, we none of us want to know the God who is really there. We might want God, so long as he's in our image and approves of everything we want to do, but we don't want the God who is really there. And even if we did, we're, we're hopelessly lost. We haven't got a map. How do we find out what God is like, even if we want to? You see, if God doesn't speak to us, if God doesn't reveal himself, doesn't put the map in our hands, well then we're as lost as I would be in the Levante without this map and speaking no Spanish. This is so important, it's actually where John Calvin begins his famous Institutes. he says this, without the truth about God, we also don't know ourselves, because God is the foundation of all things. We don't know where we come from. We don't know who we are. We don't know what we're made for. We don't know how to live. We don't know where we're heading. We know nothing. If God doesn't speak, we're totally lost. And I think you can see that in British society today, can't you? We've so strongly suppressed the truth about God that we no longer have any idea what a human being is either. Just make it up as we go along, don't we? Just be whoever you want to be, it doesn't really matter. Without the word of God, we are hopelessly lost. And so, as Christians, we do want God to speak. And the temptation can be to bypass the Bible, can't it? And look for special words from God for me today, for my life. We want to hear what God says, but we want him to talk about me. About my decisions, about my future, about what I'm going to do, about the pain that I'm going through. I want him to talk directly to me. But that is to miss the point, isn't it? If God speaks, he gets to decide how and where and when. And he gets to decide what to speak about. He gets to talk about the things that he thinks are important, the things that he wants us to know. Those are the things that speak of who God is and so who we are. So with that preamble out of the way, let's jump into our first main point this morning. Uh, Jesus is the Word of God. The most important thing you need to go away from this talk with is this. Jesus is the Word. And the Apostle John is particularly clear about this. If you turn to John 1 verse 1, page 1063, um, feel free to not jump around with me. But if you want to see the, the references that I'm making, then John chapter 1 verse 1. I think Andy's already taken us to this passage this morning. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Here, John, deliberately echoing Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. And John says, there's this person called the Word, who is both God and yet distinct from God the Father. He was there at the creation. Indeed, he was the one through whom all things were made, verse 3. This person is Jesus, verse 14. And he's taken and said, The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us, and we have seen his glory. Or take John 14, verse 6. Uh, Perhaps one of those famous verses that you you know you know, but you're not sure where you know it from. John 14, verse 6. Jesus answered, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus is the truth. He's the truth about God. He's the one who shows us what God is like. John's Gospel is literally uh, crampacked with this. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. I and the Father are one, and so on. It's utterly critical that we see this. God is hidden from us. God is invisible. He's infinitely great, infinitely different to us, are perfect in every way, a concept we can barely even begin to get our heads around. And so we have no possible way, no hope of working out what God is like from ourselves, from the world around us, even if we wanted to, which of course we don't because of our sin. And so God has taken the initiative. He wants to be known and has stepped into the world as one of us coming as a man speaking our language i say that i know he spoke aramaic but you know what i mean he he, by being a person you read the gospels you look at jesus and go yeah i get him he's one of us god has come to show us what he is like now this is really important if you'd gone to the apostles back in the day you've gone to peter or you had gone to john or whatever and you said point point me to the word of god Well, of course, secondarily, they probably would have gone to the Scriptures. They'd have pointed to the Scriptures. There's the Word of God. But the first thing they'd have done is pointed to Jesus. Jesus is God's self-revelation. If you want to know what God is like, the only place you can go is Jesus. Of course, that takes you to the very heart of the offence of the Gospel, doesn't it? Only Jesus? So not Muhammad then, or our own rational minds working stuff out, or or a study of nature. No. In fact, you can tell that other religions are wrong because of how they treat Jesus. Because after all, Jesus is God. Jesus is God revealing himself. If you have a different concept of what God is like, then you are wrong, because God has spoken. Well, you might say, okay, fair enough, but we can't point people to Jesus. Jesus is is invisible to us in the same way the Father is. So how useful is this? And that gets us to our second point. The whole Bible is God's true word, about Jesus. The whole Bible is God's true word about Jesus. See, for those of us who've never seen Jesus walking in Jerusalem, as the song says, God has given us the Bible. Not just the Gospels, you understand, which are obviously about Jesus, but all of it. The stuff from what was written before Jesus came, the law, the prophets and the Psalms, all of it is about him. And all of it is from God. And all of it is true. Let's take those three things as we run through. It's all about Jesus. That takes us back to our reading uh, that uh, Neil read for us a few minutes ago. Back to Luke 24. Do flip that open, would you? This is Jesus, post-resurrection, page 1061. Post-resurrection, walking on the road to Emmaus with two of his disciples. And this is what Jesus says. Jesus said to them, How foolish you are and slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. I, this. I spotted this just as Neil was reading for us. Noted verse 18. Cleopas turns to Jesus and says, are you the only one visiting Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened in these days? To which the answer is no. Jesus is the only one who understands. He's the only one who understands what's happened in these days. And he opens up the Scriptures to them. He opens up Moses and the prophets. He opens up the whole of Scripture to them. Just imagine that Bible overview, by the way. Wouldn't you love to have been there with Cleopas and his mate? Just let Jesus explain the whole Scripture to you. Now, traditionally, the Jews divided the Old Testament into three parts. The books of Moses, the first five books. Uh, Then uh, the Psalms, which which meant the wisdom books. And then the prophets, which took in lots of the history books as well. And sometimes in the Bible, when when the writers are trying to recall the whole of Scripture to us, they'll say something like, uh, Moses, uh, the law, the prophets and the Psalms, or something like that. Or just the law and the prophets. Which is what's going on here, isn't it? Jesus opens up Moses and the prophets to them. He opens up the Old Testament the major sections of the Old Testament, Jesus says, these are about me. They're all about me. Which means that not only is every section of the Old Testament about Jesus, but every book in the Old Testament is about Jesus. Every uh, chapter, in some ways, is about Jesus. Every verse, every word, to a greater or lesser extent, is about Jesus. Because Jesus is God's one topic of conversation which is why the old testament the new testament writers when they're explaining jesus go back to the old testament don't they they go back and say just as it was said in the prophets jesus fulfilling what was said over here jesus is the one topic of the whole of scripture yes written over centuries in many styles by many different authors who all imprinted the scriptures with their own personality. I've been reading Jeremiah in my devotions recently. He's an emotional man. He, he gets, a lot, gets pretty teary. He's a, he's a different character to lots of the guys in the Bible. Uh, definitely imprinting the scriptures with their own personalities. But all of it is about Jesus. Because secondly, in this point, it's all from God. And we know that, that verse only from 2 Timothy 3, 16. All scripture is God-breathed, And useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. Uh, God breathed literally means uh, spirited out. If Jesus is the word of God, spoken by God, then the spirit is the breath of God that carries the word of God. That's how intimately the Father, the Son, and the Spirit work together in this, this issue of revelation. So yes, every scripture has a human author. But all of the scriptures together have one divine author who ensures that the Bible is all about Christ. That doesn't mean that the Spirit dictated the Scriptures to the human authors. Some people think that's what we mean by the spiritual inspiration of the Scriptures. No, rather, the Spirit works inside the writers. So that as they're writing what they want to write, so the Spirit is ensuring that they are writing what He wants them to write. And I take it, you know, when we get to, to Gloria, we meet all the guys who wrote the Old Testament, They'll look at their own scriptures and look at all the rest of the story and go, gosh, I didn't really understand what I was writing. There was so much more there. I thought I was just writing about some stuff that was happening in my day, but actually the Spirit was writing into the same scriptures, prophecy and typology towards the New Testament and towards Christ. And so we don't revere the scriptures. Sometimes people say about evangelicals, we worship the Bible. I hope we don't do that. I think sometimes we're tempted to do that, but I hope we don't do that. But we do worship the Holy Spirit, who caused the Scriptures to be written. And we do worship Jesus, who is laid out for us on every page. And we do worship the Father, who is revealed by Jesus in the Scriptures that the Holy Spirit has written. So if we want to worship the three persons of the Godhead, well then we have to go to the Scriptures, don't we? That's where we honour them. God, the Holy Spirit, is the one author of Scripture, and he talks about Jesus. And so we've said it's all about Jesus, it's all from God, and it's all true. That's a logical extension of the previous two points, isn't it? Since the Spirit authors Scripture, and since we know that God cannot lie, then it must be the case that the Scriptures are all true. It's what we call the the doctrine of the inerrancy of Scripture. do push me on that afterwards. It means that, just as Jesus is the truth about God, so the scripture, uh, written, inspired by the Spirit, breathed out by the Spirit, is absolutely the truth about Jesus. What's more, God knew his audience. We sometimes think, don't we, I really wish God would speak to me today. All this stuff that was written 2,000, 3,000 years ago, it's so old hat. it's so dusty and far gone. But God... Knew you. He didn't write the Bible because he thought, I'm oh, a bit bored, made the world, it's all ticking along fine, I'm just going to write a book now. Rather, he wanted to say something important and he wanted to say it to us. The Bible tells us that God knew your name before you were created. You knew your name before the dawn of creation. Before he made the world, he had a plan and the plan included you. So he knew your name. He knew your situation, whatever it is, happy, sad situation you're in at the moment. He knows the situation you'll be in next week and the week after. And as you face that situation, God has had the scriptures written for you. The Bible is God's deeply personal love letter to each and every one of his people. About the thing that he cherishes most in the world, which is Jesus. Jesus and the thing about which he wants us to cherish as well. Now that doesn't mean that there's no hard work involved in understanding the Scriptures. After all, the reality is we're still sinners, aren't we? Even as believers, we're still sinners who often don't want to read the Bible. We don't want to be told what it says. We know we ought to, but we don't always find we want to. If we want to see Jesus clearly in the Scriptures, we have to be willing to listen to what God wants to say to us. And not impose our own uh, culturally formed views. So easy, isn't it, to read into the Bible what we want it to say so that it says what I want it to say so that it never really challenges me, never really changes me. And God becomes simply a, a mirror image of myself. But if we do it right, if we come to the Scriptures willing to listen to what God has to say, then the Word of God reveals to us the Word of God, Jesus. Jesus. Let's just pause here for one moment and think about some of the implications of this. First of all, if we read our Bibles carefully, then the Scriptures will always take us to Jesus. So if you're reading through books of the Bible in your quiet times, or in our home groups, or or in our church services, and we don't ever get to Jesus, if we never ask the question, how does this book of the Bible teach me about Jesus, then we have failed at the most fundamental level to understand what the book is about, haven't we? Hopefully the Bible overview, if you were here two years ago, we did a Bible overview in our small groups. Hopefully if you were here for that, then you have some idea how, all the, how you might fit all of the books into the big unfolding story of the Bible and Jesus. And Andy and I will be trying to show you uh, how this works in 2 Samuel as we start next week. Uh, secondly, we need the whole Bible. We did, we did at Revelation in our small groups last year Partly because it's, it's a bit of the Bible that we're scared of. And if we're honest, we, you know, both of us wouldn't notice from one year to the next if somebody came along and just took a scalpel and cut Revelation out of our Bibles and threw them away. The Bible would be a bit lighter, but we, we'd never get that far in the Scriptures to see if it's still there. And yet God has given us the whole Bible. He thinks the whole Bible is necessary to give us that fully rounded view of Jesus. And so a fully rounded view of himself. And so if there are bits of the Bible we don't ever go near, well, that's a bit worrying, isn't it? Because it means we're not seeing the full picture. We're, we are actually in danger of making God in our own image just by neglect. We're robbing ourselves of seeing the glory of Je- I take it at least some of us will have seen the glory of Jesus more clearly in Revelation last year. Still, there's another problem. See, the Bible isn't everything that God could have said. Uh, John, in the end of his own gospel, says, says that uh, were all the things written down that Jesus did in his ministry, the books would fill the whole earth. You think, well, gosh, so really, we've, we've only got 1,200 pages when well, actually there, there could be so much more to be said. Have we got enough? Have we got enough? And that idea is compounded yet again when I look for references to me in the Bible. I don't know if you've ever done that. You're trying to find out what job you should go for, and you look through the Bible, and there's no reference to your job situation in the Scriptures. Or You want to know where you should live, or or even what ice cream you should buy from the shops, and you're not really sure, and and you just want some guidance. You want a passage to jump out at you and tell you what to do. And yet your name is not even there. And your situation isn't referenced, and Earlsfield's not mentioned, and you go, gosh, Is there enough? Is the Bible enough for us to know Jesus truly? And is it enough for me in my life situation? And that takes us to our third point on your handouts. God's word is sufficient for life and godliness. God's word is sufficient for life and godliness. And the theologically important word here is sufficient, which I'll I'll be honest, is a fairly dull word, isn't it? But it captures two really important truths for us this morning. On the one hand, it means that not everything God knows is in the Bible. Sufficient doesn't say total, does it? And so you get scriptures like Deuteronomy twenty-nine, twenty-nine: The secret things belong to the Lord our God. But the revealed things are for you and for your children that you may do them. See, if if there's the total that God knows about everything, God's given us this bit. But it's sufficient for us. Sufficiency also means that it's enough to achieve God's purpose for it. Sufficient, that is, not simply to tell us things in our heads. Here's some battles from the Old Testament. You should learn about those. Here are some laws, they're they're good to kind of understand. But the Scripture are sufficient to do what God intends for it, which is to say, to save us. Let's just think about the power of God's word, just for a moment. Let me take you back to Genesis 1 verse 1. God begins by speaking. I think it's verse 3, God says, let there be light. And what happens? The light appears. But I wonder if you have got to stop to think about this. Think about what's actually happening at this point. Light has never existed. Light is not a thing. God is not, when God says, let there be light, he's not saying, you know, like the other lights in the big Ikea down the road. God is saying this. The idea of light is in my head. I've invented it. And as I speak the word light, light will come into existence for the first time. I bring into being the thing that I have imagined by my word. God's word is powerful to create things that do not exist. God's word is creative. God's speaking gives meaning to the things that he's creating. God says light, and that is what it's called. It's called light. And God has made it. And so when God declares in his scripture... That a Christian is righteous in his sight. He's not merely saying things. He's not merely using words as you or I might merely use words. He's actually making it true. When you read the scriptures that talk of your justification before God. And you believe the things that God has said. It is through these very words that God is making true the thing that he's saying. I appreciate that. It's Conceptual. God's word creates reality. When God says, you are my child, you are a child of the living God. He's not merely saying words. He is making it so. God makes promises all through the scriptures to transform us as we believe in him. And as Christians, we believe God's words, don't we? We believe him by believing the words that he said. So we, we take his promises at face value and we believe them. And at that moment, through the word, God actually changes us as he promises to do. It's what the scriptures call us new creations. It's why the scriptures tell us that we have our heart of stone taken away and a heart of flesh put in its place. The spirit comes to live in us the moment we put our trust in Jesus. And we are... New creations, children of God, justified, bound for glory. These things are achieved by the Scriptures. God's true word about his one word, Jesus. Of course, we, put, we, we live by faith, don't we? By which we mean we, we live by the Bible. We saw that in, in Psalm 119 all summer. The lamp to our feet, the guide to our path, the word that, that promises eternity with Jesus as we read it, as we hear it taught, as we keep believing day by day the things that have been put before us in the word, as we trust in the Jesus that is revealed on every single page to us, God achieves his purposes. And what is his purpose? Just turn over to page 1222. 2 Peter, chapter 1, verse 3. 1222. That's what Peter says. His divine power, notice it's powerful word. Notice that it is God's power at work. His divine power has given us everything we need. Need for what? what? For what purpose, Peter, do we need? For life and godliness. Well, okay, power for life and godliness, but how? Where does it come from? How do we get this power? Through our knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and goodness. Do you see the logic? God's power is at work through the knowledge that he gives us of his Son in the Scriptures. That power of God, the Spirit of God working through the Word, the Spirit who wields the sword of the Spirit, which is the Scripture, that power is stirred up in us. Strengthened as we continue to study the Scriptures, as we, as we look at Jesus day after day, as we gaze on the glorious face of the Son so we see the radiance of the Father and we are transformed day by day by day. But to what end? Life and godliness. Life, of course, is obvious, isn't it? It's, it's eternal life. It's life with God forever. The Scriptures, as we put our trust in the Jesus who's revealed there, we get life. We're transformed. We have the spiritual life that lasts forever. The scriptures are not given so that we might confess that God is real. The scriptures are not given so that we might give intellectual assent to the things that have happened. It is there so we might commit our lives to God. And by committing our lives to God, we might receive eternal life. And we might grow to be godly. Which is to say being like God. It is to say being like Jesus. The God who's revealed in the scriptures shows us what real life in God's world should be. Shows us how to be loving, shows us how to be compassionate, shows us how to be caring and strong and tender all at the same time. And so as we gaze on Jesus, as we grow to know him and love him more, so we become more transformed to be like him. We become increasingly glorious ourselves, become increasingly human. That was Calvin's point. Without God, we don't know ourselves. But knowing God truly we become more truly human. After all, Jesus is the only perfect human. And as we gaze on him in the scriptures which speak of him, so we become more like him. See, God wants to save us from his judgment, and he does that at our conversion, and he wants to save us from our sinfulness, which he does day by day by day as we gaze on Jesus in the scriptures. And the scripture is sufficient and powerful to achieve that end. Now, of course, you might have objections at this point that you want to raise in questions. We'll get to that in just a moment. You might want to ask, well, how, why do we trust the Bible to tell us about the Bible? Surely that's a circular argument. You might want to ask that one. You might want to say, well, if God wants to speak to me, why, why isn't the Bible clearer? Why do I find it so hard to read the Bible from time to time? And you could ask that one as well. And I'm sure there are other questions as well. But time is up. Let me give us a few thoughts on the implications of this doctrine for us at Christ Church this year. First of all, the whole scripture is God's promissory word about Jesus. Which means we must if we disobey or disbelieve anything in the scriptures, we are disobeying and disbelieving God Himself. Uh, The Christian who has put their faith in God has put their faith in the whole promise of God, which is to say the whole scripture. We are required to believe everything in the Bible. And that doesn't mean that you have to know everything in the Bible yet. But each week as you learn more, there is a continued question, isn't there? Will you believe this? Will you live by this? Secondly, because the Bible is sufficient for life and godliness for all of us, therefore we teach the Scriptures to all. To the mature believer, who knows many of these things already but needs to be reminded and shown the goodness of it again. To our kids upstairs. To our non-Christian friends as we meet them for a coffee and open up the Scriptures with them. Because it's the Bible that is sufficient for life and godliness as it points to Jesus. So we open up the Bible wherever we can. We have a Bible thoughts at the beginning of our prayer meeting to guide our thoughts and prayers, because it is through the Scriptures that God's power is at work in us to transform us and grow us to be godly. It's also thirdly why we teach through books of the Bible. We started there, didn't we? We could do a load of topical talks. The church I was converted at, we did topical talks every week. I think we did like a, we went around six. Six topics over and over and over again. I think it was just the six things the vicar wanted to talk about most. We could do that. But we want to hear God speak. We don't want to make God talk about the things that we want to talk about. We want to let God set the agenda. And so we listen to what he has said in the Bible. We teach through books of the Bible because that is what God has given us. We let him set the topic of conversation. Fourthly... We need it it all, and so we're committed to teaching it all. Now clearly we can't teach the whole scripture in one year, or two years, or three years, but we're committed to teaching through the whole of the Bible over time, which is why we tackle difficult books. We tackled Revelation last year, not because we wanted to be masochistic, but because it matters that we're committed to teaching the whole of scripture. And God has given us the whole thing so we may know Jesus truly. And it matters that we read the whole Bible and know Jesus there. And fifthly, it is crucial that we bring out the meaning of the text that's before us and not simply impose our own agenda on it. And I want to say, this is on your head. You guys have to hold Andy and I to account as we teach through the Bible week by week. Are we teaching you what is there? There's a church in London where on their pulpit it says, a little brass plaque, Sir, we would see Jesus. And that is right. Our job is to lay Jesus before you, that you may love him more, cherish him above all things, desire to be like him. That doesn't mean that every sermon will be all about Jesus. It doesn't mean every passage is more clearly about Jesus than every other. It means that, as we teach through books of the Bible, you should come to the clear mind how the book points to Jesus. And I hope we'll be able to do that in uh, 2 Samuel this term. And finally, it means that when we're thinking about how we relate to the rest of the church outside, we must pick our battles carefully. It means, on the one hand, that we must be willing to stand on everything the Bible says. If God has said it, it is the truth. And we must defend that truth, even the stuff that's really unpalatable in our society, even the stuff that divides us from other people who call themselves Christians but will not listen to the scriptures. God has spoken. God has spoken. And we build our lives on his word and we defend his words. There was, uh, I think it's Spurgeon who said, you know, defend the word of God, I'd rather defend the lion. Let the word do its own work. But nevertheless, the Bible comes under attack. Jesus comes under attack. God himself comes under attack. And we must stand. Or we will lose not only God, but our own identity as well. And yet... We must also be willing to bend, to flex ourselves over things that are not crystal clear in Scripture. and We must be willing to, to team up with and be united to all people who truly believe in Jesus, who love the Scriptures, but who come to a different mind on some secondary matters. And of course it's, it's a matter for all of us as a church to work out where the hard edges are and where the soft edges are. I could say a lot more, and you may want to push me to one or two things. Um, Why don't we have five minutes or so of questions, if you've got them? And if you haven't, then it's fine. I'll stop and pray. But if you've got one or two things you want to ask, that would be good to do now. Ali, go on. Thank you. I have a question. I'm going to sound like a dummy when I ask it. Good. That's all right, isn't it? Given all those thoughts, why do we often find it so hard to read, and particularly... Why yeah. Why to find yeah. yeah, why do we find it so hard to read scripture? i, mean, I tell you, my, my early years as a Christian, I mean, I, I would sit with the Bible in front of me, and it would be closed on my desk. And I would have just the most incredible battle to open it up. It's the weirdest thing, isn't it? Because opening a book is so easy. And yet I would sit there for 15 minutes trying to wrestle within myself the, the will to open it up and once I'd actually prized open the pages, was like oh that's fine okay, now I can read it and it's fine but it was, it's, a, it's a spiritual battle isn't it opening up the scriptures is a spiritual battle and as Christians we're not perfected people yet you know the, the old sinful nature is still at work in us and we you know, reading the scriptures is, is confrontational isn't it because Jesus the perfect man stands up and shows us ways in which we need to be changed we don't want to change do we we'd love the rest of the world to change but we want the world to conform to us there's a part of us that doesn't want to conform to god's word, and so i think there really is a very strong spiritual battle at work and it takes a will to get up and early enough to read your bible it, it takes you know we, we can excuse it for all, in all sorts of ways too busy too tired all of that don't be don't don't miss the point here the devil is at work and the thing he hates most in the world is the Word of God, which points to Jesus. And so it is, you know, it's a spiritual triumph. When you get up and you read your Bible and you say your prayers, you are sticking two fingers up to the devil, and that's not a bad thing to do at the beginning of your day, is it? Does that help? Yes. Good. Another question? No? Come grab me after if you've got, if you've got others. There's lots more about what we've said today in the book at the back and more clearly um, all the diagrams are mine, the jokes are all riches Uh, I think it's a better book for that, probably the right way around Uh, Let me pray for us as we come to an end Our Father you have spoken and you have spoken clearly about your son that we might love him as you love him That we might be devoted to him as you are devoted to him. That we might uh, see his glory uh, reflected in each other as we become more and more like him. Please renew us in his image. Please uh, give us the courage this week to read and read and see Jesus on every page. That we might uh, be a church in his image. In his name we pray. Amen. Amen. You're the word of the tribe from before the world.